And all I have to say is, you don't have to know everything from day one. Put yourself out there. You will likely get rejected like I was. <laughs> but don't be scared of rejection. Don't take it personal. Take it as an opportunity to learn and just keep pitching, keep putting yourself out there. Welcome to the Start Right Here podcast. We put the spotlight on BIPOC beauty pros and their paths to success. We share their stories along with actionable tips that you can apply to your career or your life. We invite you to subscribe, rate, or review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share it with a friend. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about building a business with social impact. And a lot of times we think we know what social impact is, but we really don't. Today, we're going to talk about beauty meets social impact with a woman who has done just that. Rahama Wright, the founder of Shea Yaleen, a beauty company that works with 14 villages in Ghana on a collective. So we're going to learn how she came to do that, the work that she does, and what makes a social impact company? What does that mean? We're going to learn all of that today. And I'm so pleased to welcome Rahama here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. I'm excited to have you here. Let's start with just fun questions. Do you remember the first beauty product you ever purchased? The first beauty product I ever purchased? Well, when I was young, I grew up in upstate New York. It was very cold, very harsh winters, and I would have incredibly ashy skin. But there weren't a lot of like options for me to get products that worked with my skin. So I was obsessed with Bath and Bodies Works. We lived about 45 minutes from the mall, so I didn't get to the mall that frequently. But when we would go, I would immediately beeline to Bath and Bodies Works and just try all of their lotions and their creams. And so I think that it's highly likely that that was one of the first beauty products I ever bought was a moisturizer from Bath and Bodies Works. What's the most recent product that you tried or purchased? Well, outside of Shailene's product line. Yes. One of my friends recommended The Ordinary. They're a facial brand that's gotten really popular. And she recommended their glycolic acid. And so I've been using that to try to help improve the texture of my skin. (laughs) Okay. The Ordinary. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? The beauty advice I live by. I think that for me, beauty is more than what we look like physically. And I honestly feel like it's more so what we want to like create or build in the world. That's to me is what's beautiful. Like I get inspired by hearing people's stories and like our humanity. And there's so much going on in this world that I think that we have to start looking at beauty as being much more than physical appearance. And so for me, it's always trying to figure out who someone is, like really, like who are they authentically? And as I'm struggling to kind of 
pull this together right now, right here with you. I guess if I were to define beauty, it's being our authentic self. I love that. I'm going to start with the in-depth questions, the nitty-gritty of our interview. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you? Oh my gosh, total detour. I always say I had no business starting a beauty business. I mean, I had no experience in the beauty world. I did not live in any community where beauty and beauty products were part of my day-to-day, honestly. You know, I didn't live in New York City or Paris or LA. And so it was a total accident that I ended up being in the beauty business and beauty industry. And it was simply because of my service abroad. After I completed Peace Corps, I wanted to create something that would help impact the lives of women in West Africa. And I learned about shea butter and its connection to the lives of women in the Sahel region of Africa. And that's why I got into the beauty industry. And so there's been a lot of starts and stops in my journey because I had a huge learning curve, learning everything from packaging, marketing, branding. And it's still something that I'm trying to figure out, to be quite honest. But no, complete detour. If you had asked me (laughs) freshman year of college, will you be running a beauty business? I'd look at you like you are crazy. What made you go to the Peace Corps? I've always wanted to be a Peace Corps volunteer. So my parents met when my dad did the Peace Corps. So it's always been a part of my growing up journey. And even though I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York, there was not a lot of diversity. My family was very diverse, both racially, culturally, religiously, like everything. So there were Christians in my family, Muslims in my family, white people in my family, black people in my family, interracial people in my family, multilingual. It was literally the UN. (laughs) And so I always had an eye towards international. My mom is Ghanaian and I knew I wanted to do something in Africa because of my connection to Africa and my interest in women's issues. So all of those reasons were why I eventually, after college, joined the Peace Corps. Do you get to choose where you go? So I'm older. So when I did it, I was a Peace Corps volunteer from 02 to 04. You could not choose. Now in 2022, you can choose. But you could kind of give interest in terms of, oh, I want to go to a French-speaking country or a Spanish-speaking country. But you couldn't actually choose the country. Now you can. Now you can actually say, uh, I want to go to Thailand or I want to go to Senegal or South Africa. Back in the day, you couldn't do that. Wow. That's amazing. You ended up in Africa anyway, though, right? Yes, because of my French speaking background. Because I could speak French, they put me in a Francophone program. And Francophone Africa is essentially the African countries that were colonized by the French. Okay. How long is service for the Peace Corps? Two years. A little over two years because you get like about 10 weeks of training. So training is cultural training and then your sector training and language training. I'm fascinated by this because I think I've known a few people that serve, but I never got to ask them all these kind of nitty gritty questions. Are there specific tasks that you're doing when you're serving depending on the project Yeah. So depending on the program, because there are a variety of needs and sectors. 
So some programs have like education, health, HIV, AIDS, water sanitation, agriculture. So depending on which program you get into, you will be assigned a sector. And so the program that I was assigned to was in Mali, and they had health sector, HIV, AIDS, water sanitation, and small business. So they had four different sectors, and I was assigned to the health sector. I don't know why they put me in the health sector. (laughs) I had no health background. I'm actually incredibly queasy when it comes to anything medical. I'm like the last person you want around when you're dealing with a medical emergency. (laughs) But I ended up being in health. And what that meant was I was assigned to a community health center. And every day I would go to the community health center and I would essentially support the nurse with anything that she needed. And depending on the community, sometimes a nurse is all that's available. There may not be a doctor right in that community, but there's always like a midwife, for example. There's always someone who is helping and supporting like women with pre and postnatal care. And so that's essentially what I did. I helped the nurse with pre and postnatal care, helped to vaccinate a lot of babies and essentially was her assistant and did whatever she needed me to do. And what I noticed was frequently women would come to my community health center and either they would be sick or their kids would be sick. And there'd always be some financial issue, whether they couldn't afford medicine or pay for the services, even though a lot of the services were subsidized, it still costs a little bit of money, not a tremendous cost. And it just struck me that they couldn't afford something that costs $2, for example, or less than $2. And that's when I started researching income generating activities for women. I knew about shea butter. Like I said before, I spent all my allowance money on Bath and Body's work. So I was familiar with Shea. I never knew it came from Africa until I started living in the community and seeing firsthand how women made this product and its connection to their lives in the traditional sense. And so that's kind of what opened my eyes to a lot of the issues around women, their ability to be able to generate income for themselves. And I noticed so many disconnections between the local environment. So everything from women harvesting the fruit, it grows in a tree, taking out the raw material, extracting oil. So what's happening locally in these communities to what happens in the global marketplace and someone going into a store and being able to pick up a product that has shea on it. Yeah, that's amazing. At that moment where you were researching it, were you thinking about being an entrepreneur? Nope. <laughs> Listen, I know how to spell entrepreneur and I still don't know how to spell entrepreneur. <laughs> no, absolutely. It never occurred to me. I don't even think after I started Shailene, I didn't really see myself as an entrepreneur or as a business person. I just saw a disconnect. I saw something happening over here that wasn't right. And then something happening over here that could help correct what was going on on this end. And so that's kind of how I saw it. I saw myself as attempting to solve a problem. Never did I say, oh, I'm now a businesswoman. What was the timeline like for, you know, you had this idea, you complete the Peace Corps. Did you marinate on it? and start working when you came back to the States? Like, walk me through that. No, I did not. 
I'm the poster child for don't do what she did. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I was in my early 20s. I did not marinate on anything. I didn't really think it all through. I just said to myself, I can do this. There was absolutely no evidence to say that I could. I had no money. I didn't know the first thing about creating products, everything from sourcing to importing, exporting, clearing things out of customs, none of it. All I knew was there were women in these communities who needed access to a market. And along the way, I kind of pieced it together and figured it out. I mean, I would say maybe three, four years in was when I even started considering pulling together a business plan. (laughs) So I took the very long way because there was so much I needed to understand and figure out that I didn't even consider before starting. And for me, the urgency was wanting to find a way to help these women who I just felt needed an opportunity, it just seemed so unfair that they were part of these multi-billion dollar industries, personal care, as well as confectionery, because a lot of shea is used in chocolate manufacturing. And it just felt like, why does it have to be this way? There's got to be another solution to this. So that's how I started and why I started. And so it took me very long time to actually get to a place where I felt confident that I was actually developing a serious beauty business, but it certainly wasn't from day one. Right. Because there's a lot of components here. There's also enlisting the women and working with the cooperatives. How did you go about forging those partnerships? Partnership building from the perspective of the communities that I've worked with over the years has always been through being in the community and developing those relationships with the community. And so the community knowing me, being connected to me has always been a critical part to this. I think it would be harder if I was trying to do all of this in the U.S. and had never touched ground in the communities that I work with and in. And so that has been the best way I found to develop those relationships And honestly, now people reach out to me, like I get emails regularly, hey, we're cooperative in this country. We'd love to work with you. Can you help us? To the point where it's overwhelming and I wish I could help and work with everyone, but I just don't have enough of the market share to be able to do that, at least not now. But in the beginning, it was just being there. It was being on the ground. It was meeting people, doing site visits, traveling to the villages, and meeting women in their communities. And then from there, the way the Shailene model works is from seed to shelf, really, like from when the women harvest all the way through production and to the market, we provide wraparound holistic services that help women transform a raw material into a retail-ready product. And so what that involves is everything from organizing cooperatives, making sure women, all of their documentations are in place from that level to access to manufacturing equipment, access to safe processing facilities. We've actually built facilities from the ground up, meaning making sure there's water, making sure there's electricity coming in, 
doing that level of development, and then also access to capital so that they can invest in paying for the tools and all of the components to manufacture, and then bringing it to the port, shipping it out to the U.S. and clearing it from customs, and then working with our contract manufacturers to create our entire line of products that we then connect to retail outlets. Macy's is one of them. MGM Resorts is another. Select Whole Foods Markets. And through that entire value chain supply chain, we're able to increase women's income five times their country's minimum wage. So giving them a living wage for the very first time. That is amazing. I've met people that have shea in their product, but I've never heard a partnership as comprehensive as yours. I will say that. And I think it's admirable five times the living weight. So you have literally changed people's lives there. And because that was your goal and not, I'm going to start a beauty business, this is what <laughs> this is what social impact is. This is like making a measurable difference in people's lives. I mean, that's not the exact definition. I'm just saying that it has meaning beyond a beauty company. Yeah. And I think it was honestly kind of that saying, what you focus on is what grows. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. It's probably not that saying exactly. But what you put attention on is what becomes reality. And for me, my attention was the women who are making this product from day one. It wasn't like years later, oh, let me build social impact. Let me figure out a women's program to support. It was literally intentionally building an entire business model with the focus of helping to create living wages for women. That was always the plan from the beginning. And I think because that was my focus, I will admit I stumbled on the beauty side because beauty is great. Yes. But for me, it was like, how can I get these women to move from where they are now to another level? And I understand more now than I did before that in order to do that, I needed to have a credible beauty business behind the mission. But for many years, I was so focused on figuring out the ecosystem that would be needed to help these women take advantage of a natural resource that they rightfully should be benefiting from. This is not a handout. This is not some foreign development model that we're implementing. This is theirs. The ownership of this supply chain should fully be in the hands of African women because you cannot get a shea product anywhere in the world and an African woman wasn't a part of that supply chain. It's roughly 12 million women across 21 countries. They are the originators. They are the ones who even made it possible for anyone to know what shea butter was. So when you think about it from that perspective, there shouldn't be any model that doesn't prioritize the labor of these women who are Black and Brown, who are African in their supply chain. And because it was so intentional, that's why I can say the level of impact, because from day one, it was always about impact. It wasn't later on. And some people might be like, well, how do you know for sure? And I do want to talk about that for five seconds. So when we build out our production costs, 
And this is any business. When you build out your cogs, you put in all of the costs that it creates to make a product. Oftentimes, when it comes to buying a raw material or a commodity, typically it doesn't take into account labor. It's always about supply and demand, which doesn't necessarily incorporate the labor of people. And so what we've done is we've developed a model where incorporating the labor that is paid at a living wage in our costs of production. So that's not skipped. That's not taken out. And how do we determine what's a living wage? Well, there are two ways we do that. The first one is we look at governmental data on minimum wage. So what is the government saying is a minimum wage for their country? We look at that. And then we interview the women that we work with. How much does it cost to do X, Y, Z? Whether it's sending your kids to a better school, getting access to a health insurance card, getting access to better food, you know, all of those things. We develop a questionnaire and survey and then ask them, how much would you want to make? In the best case scenario, what would be your ultimate monthly income that you would just feel so comfortable and there would be no anxiety about taking care of your needs? They give us that number. And from that, we've developed a multiplier of five. And that multiplier takes into consideration government data, but it also takes in consideration survey data from the women that we work with. So it's comprehensive in terms of the research that you're doing. And it makes sense that you were an analyst (laughs) (laughs) because you approached this like an analyst. Guilty as charged. (laughs) One of our questions I always ask people in your other jobs, what skill did you pick up that you use every day? Well, yours is so obvious, (laughs) you're analytical (laughs) and it serves the business so well because data is driving a lot of decisions that are being made. Absolutely. And I never wanted to look back and then be confused about the level of impact we were making. And for me, I know that there are models that more people are used to, like you buy a product, someone gets a product, you know, the buy one, give ones, or you buy a product, we donate 1% to an education program. Typically, when it's like a consumer packaged good. That's the way we see a lot of these brands talking about impact. Oh, you buy a product, we planted a tree, you know, those type of models. And although I do think there's a place for these types of models, what I always go back to is what I would want if I was on the other side. And let me tell you, please don't plant a tree. Give me my money. wage so I can take care of these kids. Like It's kind of a no-brainer. Because we got enough trees or the tree is nice, but I need. Or pay me a living wage and I can plant my own trees. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Definitely. Talk to me about definitions. What's the difference between nonprofit, social impact, and a certified B Corp? So when I first started Shailene, I started as a 501c3 nonprofit. And so again, part of that mission-driven, really not thinking about business, thinking about beauty, it was more about building that ecosystem and figuring out how to support these women. 
it came out of that model of being a nonprofit. So a nonprofit is an entity that has a social good and is binded by law to achieve that good. And that's why you get tax benefit. That's why you get a 501c3 and you apply for that through the IRS. So your sole purpose of existing is to create social good. A social impact business, which is what I call Shailene, is a business that has profit goals and has business goals, but is also driving social impact through their model. And so for me, that pivot and transition into a social business was because even though I was addressing a social issue, in order for me to grow and scale to the point where I wanted to, I needed to be able to take on business practices and also open up my ability to get access to investors, which isn't something you can do as a nonprofit because there can't be shareholders, there can't be anyone benefiting from a nonprofit mission. And so that transition was honestly a way for me to get funding because I wasn't getting funding as a startup nonprofit. People were like, good luck, but no, we're not giving you a grant. (laughs) So being able to structure as a business entity gave me the ability to look for social impact investors, VC funding. So just increased my pool of funding availability. Now, a B Corps is a certification that you can get to not only show that you're a business that does good, but also a business that is contributing to several key factors that they certify you on. Everything from the environment, everything from how you treat your employees in terms of like, do employees have a say in the way the business is run? Is it employee owned? So you're saying how you play your employees? Everything from employee ownership to employee decision-making and the way they're able to contribute to the decision-making process to the suppliers and how you treat suppliers. Are you making a difference when it comes to the environment and what does that look like? So they have several categories that they rank you on based on the answers that you give when you're going through the questionnaire that you're required. So it's called the Benefit Corporation. And it's a little bit more than, let's say, certifying for like fair trade or certifying for something. It's a very comprehensive look at your business to show the benefit that you're making to society. And it's a very long process to get certified. And it's something that I'm actually in the process of doing. So I'm excited to eventually be a B Corps because I think that it aligns a lot more than being certified as a fair trade company because it's a lot more comprehensive in terms of all of the different areas that I've mentioned. And not to knock fair trade, but fair trade is not the same thing as living wages. And sometimes fair trade can simply be a... percentage above like the market rate or the market price, which I guess can be fair trade, but 
what I was mentioning before doesn't necessarily mean people are making living wages and you can be paying fair trade and people are still dealing with poverty. That's kind of scary, actually, because as a consumer, you think that I buy a fair trade product, I'm supporting something, but you have no way of knowing if the people on the other end that are creating this stuff are benefiting in the way that you're hoping that they are. Yeah. And that's why I always encourage people to ask brands questions as well as try to see what you can find as much as you can online. I mean, privately held companies, you really can't find out too much. But I think the way people communicate about And not just something is like a new thing, let me jump on the bandwagon, but like historically how they've communicated and how they've positioned their brand. I think those are all indications of what that company is founded on and hold companies accountable to what they're saying. For me, one of the things that we did to support transparency to our customers, we actually brought shea producers to the U.S. to meet our stakeholders to walk into a whole food store to see how much we sell shea butter for. So there's transparency there so that they can themselves with their own eyes see how things translate to the marketplace. Because when it leaves their community, it's raw. It's just, you know, shea packaged in tons of boxes and sometimes barrels. They never get to see the end product that they're contributing to with their labor. And so to be able to have them come here, ask our buyers questions, ask our customers questions, that to me has been the single most proudest thing I've been able to do. Because if you think about it, I started this company because I was able to travel somewhere, see something, learn from it, and then create. And a lot of these communities, they're treated the way they are because they're isolated They don't have the visibility and exposure. They don't have the knowledge. They're kind of relying on intermediaries to represent them. And those intermediaries typically don't have their best interest at heart. So to be able to open up their perspective on what their resource is contributing to in the global market, to me, is real transformation because you can't take knowledge away from someone. When they experience something, see it for themselves, and then they go back into their communities and speak in their own language to their peers, that's what transformation is. Yeah. This is rich stuff. And as I said before we started recording, this is like masterclass. You will learn so much from this conversation. This is rich. Let's talk a little bit about the products. What's the hero product in the Shayeline line? Ooh, okay. You want me to put my beauty hat on. Okay, let's go. Let's go. (laughs) Yes, for a minute. So the hero product, well, two answers to that question. So I have my hero product and then the customers have theirs in terms of like, what's the top seller? My personal, of course, is the balm, the lavender honeysuckle balm. It's the balm. And the lavender honeysuckle body cream is what all the customers love. So that has historically been our top selling product. The difference between the two is the balm is pure shea. It's shea butter that is in its purest form. It has a little bit of essential and natural fragrance oils as well as vitamin E and that's it. It's a three ingredient product. It doesn't have anything else in it. It's a little thicker, but incredibly moisturizing. It does not leave your skin dry. And the other thing is 
Everyone thinks shea butter is the same. You can buy shea butter off the streets at a fair, and it's going to be the same as any raw shea you buy. And that's not necessarily the case because how the product is made really determines the final quality. And we ensure that the process that the women use to make the shea is tweaked a little bit to ensure that their traditional process is enhanced to make sure that there are no steps that aren't being taken to ensure quality. And so I'll I'll give a couple of examples. Seed sorting is super important. You can't just take all the seeds and use them because some seeds might have insects. Some seeds might be moldy. There's just so many things that you have to be careful about. So the quality of the seeds, naturally filtering the shea so there's no residuals from the seeds when they make it, and also making sure that when you filter, it just creates like a honey golden oil that when it solidifies, it just looks beautiful. And it also feels really nice on your skin. And then when we bring it in and manufacture it and package it, we make sure that it's being cooled properly so that at the end of the day, there's no crystallization. It's not gritty. It's not hard to like rub into your skin. It literally melts right onto your skin. So that's why that's my hero product. And it's super moisturizing and I have dry skin. The cream is an emulsification between the shea butter and water. So it is a water-based product. It's thick though. It's not like a lotion. It's very thick and creamy, super, super moisturizing. We don't use parabens or phenoxyethanol as a preservative system in any of our products. And it's great for someone who has like moderately dry skin, but they're looking for something that's much thicker than a lotion. And it smells amazing. (laughs) That's great. Let's talk about getting your product into these stores. You mentioned kind of casually, we're in Whole Foods, MGM Resorts. I remember, this is before the pandemic, my sister had a milestone birthday and we stayed at the MGM Resort. National Harbor, and I saw your product in When you told me that, I was just totally blown away. I love it when people find our products. (laughs) I was like, look how great this looks. This is a black woman did this show. (laughs) (laughs) That's really exciting. You're also on Walmart.com and in Macy's. What was the process like getting into retailers? Okay. I think I already said I had no business being in this business. And when I tell you this process, I have to share the very first time I pitched to a Whole Foods buyer to get my products in. I walked into my local Whole Foods. I had proudly printed the label for my soap with my home printer, delicately cut off the edges, made sure it was perfectly aligned, wrapped the soap, and then put scotch tape in the back. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, yes, this is it. This is going to be on show. (laughs) Oh, no. Girl, bye. No one is putting that on their shelf, okay? (laughs) So I walked in, I showed my product and said, you know, this is what I'm doing. And These are the women I work with and our soaps are really great. And she was like, we can't put that on shelf. (laughs) This is not properly packaged. (laughs) So I just want to share that story because that's where I started from (laughs) before being able to 
work with a designer, work with someone to help me with packaging. Now our soaps are packaged in recyclable boxes. But that process was, again, huge learning curve. And I'm grateful that that buyer was willing to give me some advice and say, listen, if we put that on shelf, it's going to be dusty. People are going to touch it. Like the product is not protected. And for it to be on shelf, you want your product to be protected. So that was kind of the first hurdle I had to jump was really the packaging, the branding of the products. So, you know, I pitched again after I kind of made some updates, but that also didn't work out. But then eventually I learned about this program through the North Atlantic region of Whole Foods where they were trying to identify the next great social impact business. They call it conscious consumerism, conscious capital. And they were looking for people under the age of 35. So they wanted people who they could mentor, help connect them with buyers within their retail chain who would then help you get on shelf. And so I was able to get into the program and I was assigned to a buyer who was amazing. Her name was Emma. She's no longer with Whole Foods, but she and I are still friends today. Like we'll send messages to each other every now and then just to check up on each other. But she was amazing. She gave me advice on packaging and she gave me advice on price point. And we were able to launch with seven stores. We then grew to 28 and in one region and then grew to three regions and were in roughly 112 stores. With COVID, things have kind of scaled back a little bit. We did a whole packaging rebrand. And so I'm still trying to move towards getting some of our old inventory out and getting the new inventory in. And all I have to say is you don't have to know everything from day one put yourself out there. You will likely get rejected like I was, (laughs) but don't be scared of rejection. Don't take it personal. Take it as an opportunity to learn and just keep pitching, keep putting yourself out there. I was 100% disappointed. I'm not going to lie. You know, you hate when you get rejected. No one loves that. But I, after I kind of like pick myself back up, she was right. I was not ready. Like, what was I thinking, right? When you told me about the scotch tape and then you said the home printer with the... So there's stuff you can do to sell at a fair. Let's say the church bazaar, the farmer's market, things you can get away with there that you can't get away with the big retailer. Absolutely. So you could print your own labels for that. You could use scotch tape even if you wanted to. But you can't in a big retailer because there are lots of regulations that go along with being on a retail shelf. Absolutely. That is a learning curve. And that is why sometimes people wait to go to retail because you need a little capital to invest in perfecting those parts of your business. You've won some awards and you've gotten some grants. So you were an Anastasia Beverly Hills grantee. You became a Halcyon Fellow. How does that benefit your business? What's that been like? Yes. 2019 ended on a very high note. It was my best year. We had retail at Washington National Airport. MGM was our largest account. I had made and developed relationships with D.C. government and their small business office. 
I honestly felt like, oh, wow, I've worked all of these years. There have been so many ups and downs, super, super highs. And then, of course, super, super lows. And I felt good. I finally felt like there was a rhythm that was happening that was moving us in the right direction. And I was excited. I was excited for 2020, you know. (laughs) And then March 2020 came around. And literally by April, almost overnight, everything was closed. Our retail in D.C. was closed. Our airport retail was closed. MGM was closed. I mean, up until that point, the majority of how we made money was through face-to-face. The massage therapists were using our products. So that meant someone was there putting it into the skin. At the airport, we were interacting with travelers every day, going past our retail, telling them, hey, you want to try a sample? So I was very high touch in person. There really wasn't doing anything online. And so almost overnight, over 70% of the business was wiped out. And I was freaking out just a little bit. And then Ghana also closed its borders for four months. So that meant our supply chain was rocked, not only on the raw material, but also in packaging. And I don't think people remember because nothing was coming from China and most of packaging comes from China. And so all the suppliers were out, completely out of stock. Even today, there's still issues with it. And so I had to really take a step back and think about, one, how am I going to get through this? How am I going to be effectively support our suppliers? There was so much uncertainty in terms of how this disease was transmitted. And so we just didn't, when I say we, I really mean me, I really didn't know what to do. And so after kind of just recognizing that this was going to be difficult, I applied for a PPP loan. I started applying to every single grant. If I heard grant in it, I was applying, I became a full-time grant writer, literally just writing grants, trying to get as much financial support as possible because I was completely bleeding money out of money. I had to furlough employees. It was a lot. And then George Floyd happened. And so now we're in like this very bizarre time of not only are we dealing with this disease, but now we're also dealing with everything around police violence, the Black community, racial inequality, lack of justice, on top of everything else. And by the time the fall of 2020 came around, I was just literally on my last everything. And a couple of things happened. I was introduced to a buyer at Macy's. They were interested in looking at the line. And that's the first time that's ever happened (laughs) where it wasn't me pitching myself, but someone coming and saying, hey, can we check you out, learn a little bit more about your business? And I had been spending the last couple of months before that doing a packaging rebrand because really there was nothing I could really do. So I was like, let's do a (laughs) rebrand. Let's figure out how we can improve our packaging. 
And so I'd been working on that. So I presented that to them. They liked it. They took samples. And then they were like, okay, we'd like to go through this process of launching you early next year, which was 2021. And then I also applied to the grant, the Anastasia Beverly Hills grant. I actually applied to that in August, so right before the fall, and found out a few months later. And it was a game changer, honestly, because the grant money came in just as I was getting ready to launch with Macy's. So now I had the capital, as you said, to get into retail, you need capital. So I had the capital to take the rebranded packaging and actually bring it to life, invest in some marketing. It was just like perfect timing. I couldn't even have wished for better timing. And then Anastasia was very approachable and it was not only the money, but she took some time and like talked to me about branding and positioning and just gave me some advice, like completely approachable. A lot of times you never know because there's such huge companies, they want to do good, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll have a conversation with the CEO or founder. She completely was very open to being involved and really cared about the brands that she had put money into. And I actually knew two of the other brand owners that also got funding from her, but it's been phenomenal. It's been a positive experience. I am very grateful that I'm still here running my business. So many businesses shut down. I do not take that for granted at all. And for me, I changed the way I look at the work that I do. And I've also changed the way I look at impact. One of the things that came out of the last couple of years is really a strong understanding of our interconnectedness and the fact that I honestly can't create the level of impact I want to if it's just about my brand, if it's just about being shaling the number one shea butter business, it has to be bigger than just me. And With that, I'm really excited to tell you something. We'll be building out a teaching lab in Washington, D.C. for early stage beauty entrepreneurs early next year with funding from D.C. government and also a corporate partner that we'll be announcing in a few months. And it will be the very first of its kind. I'm completely borrowing from the food industry. Food entrepreneurs have this shared kitchen spaces, where if you have your grandmother's yummy pound cake, you can go into a commercial kitchen, pay money, and create it to code, and then sell it to the general public. Beauty entrepreneurs, we don't have that. Manufacturing is one of the biggest hurdles to brand launching. And I've had the experience of contract manufacturers really treating me very poorly because I'm small. And my $50,000 order is not big enough for them, right? So even to me, I'm like, this is a big order for me. And having to go through that process and just knowing that any moment you might get pulled from the line or you're not considered as a valuable customer to them as the other larger companies that are dropping millions of dollars to get manufacturing in. If I'm only a six-figure business to them, eh, (laughs) And so what I want to do is disrupt manufacturing because I'm understanding more and more, we need to control as much of the supply chain as possible 
because our business model is different. And if it's only just about my brand, there are only so many communities I can work with, as you mentioned, 14. But what if it's also your brand and Tanisha's brand or Jacob's brand or Jerome's brand? Now it's going from one to five to 10 to 20 to 50. Imagine the amount of impact we can create if we're able to help all those brands be successful. And here's the thing, the market is big enough. We're talking about over 96 billion just in the natural organic category in the beauty industry. And honestly, it's people who look like us that are historically excluded because we don't have those relationships. And so that is what I'm most excited about in this year. You're also on a presidential advisory council on top of everything else. Now, as the listeners have heard over this conversation, it's not like she has free time (laughs) yet. She's starting this other big business, and she has yet to tell us about being on the Presidential Advisory Council. So I'm anxious to hear what that entails and how that came about. I, during the Obama administration, was presented with this opportunity to apply to the inaugural Presidential Advisory Council on Doing Business in Africa. And so two people in my world said, hey, Rahama, you should definitely apply to this. And I was like, okay. I honestly did it just because they told me to, not because I even expected to be appointed. It was just kind of like, okay, they're respected advisors. Let me do it. So when they asked me, I can tell them I applied. And so I applied, not given it any thought that I would be selected. I was incredibly shocked and just surprised when I was appointed under the Obama administration because I was smallest business youngest member in a room with like the head of GE Africa, the head of McKinsey Middle East and Africa, you know, these large companies. And I was like, hello, everyone. (laughs) This is Rahama, beauty entrepreneur, (laughs) working with women's cooperatives. What's up? (laughs) So I definitely stuck out like a sore thumb. And I honestly had imposter syndrome. I felt completely out of my league, not because I didn't feel good about the business that I was building, but because everyone around me wasn't necessarily thinking the same way about how to incorporate women, how to incorporate rural communities into their business models. And so I would always bring up women. So I kind of always felt like not part of the group in a sense. And everyone was much older than me. And so it kind of also felt like that, you know, my elders, yeah, I grew up in that family where people who are older than you, you got to respect them and all of that. So the first term was hard for me because I always felt like I had to overstudy the issue, draft everything. And I took on a lot more work than I should have, to be quite honest. But then I was reappointed and I was like, oh, maybe I'm good at this. And so then I started to feel a little bit more comfortable that I was in the room for the right reason and I deserve to also be in the room. And then I was appointed for a third term. And so it has been, to me, in terms of my leadership, it's helped me grow. Just even in my comfort to be in rooms where we're meeting with presidents of countries, we've got a chance to meet with Obama and feeling like, 
what my values are in business also deserves to be heard because I'm speaking not only for me, but also speaking for all the women who are in our supply chain. I truly enjoyed serving on the council because it's helped me with my own leadership. And also too, I've felt it's given other people a different perspective in terms of what can be expected from women in rural communities. Because a lot of times we think because someone is struggling with poverty or in a bad situation that they don't have agency or autonomy, but they do. And so it really has been an honor to be able to do that work. Oh, fantastic. My goodness. This is such amazing information. And it's really exciting to see a young Black woman just kind of making massive impact on so many different levels. It really makes my heart glad because you're just getting started in terms of the things that you want to do. And it's the analyst in you is like, okay, how can we make this bigger? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for the analyst in you, is what I'm going to say. What do you think the future holds for Shayeline? We've already talked about the bigger impact you want to have on the industry. The future is about creating impactful community. It's about not holding on to what I've learned, what we've learned, keeping it to ourselves, but sharing it, letting it go. And I think that in expanding how we think about impact as being inclusive of other brands in a industry that's incredibly competitive, I think that that's how we actually achieve our larger impact is by helping other people do exactly what we've done and not thinking the success of someone else takes away from our success and realizing that at the end of it, we all have finite time here. Like we're not here forever. So when we go, have we made it easier for someone else? Absolutely. For me, ultimately, I don't want to be running Shailene forever. I want the women to be running Shailene. And that's when I know real impact has happened. And I think a lot of times there's a lot of fear in entrepreneurship and in running a business. Someone's going to come eat your lunch. Someone's going to take what makes you different and special. And I've never been comfortable with my unique value proposition being social impact. We all need to be making social impact. I've always wanted to kind of push back when I do a pitch and someone's like, so what makes you unique is that you work with these women. And I've always wanted to say, that's not what I want to be our uniqueness. I want everyone to care about the type of products they're bringing to market. I want everyone to care about not having slavery in their supply chain because it is slavery. That shouldn't be my unique value proposition. I think now the unique value proposition is creating opportunity for more people. Love that idea. Okay. For my final question in the starting five, can you offer our listeners five tips for building a successful social impact company? If you're starting from zero, your knowledge and your ability to gather information is going to be the most important thing. 
So when I started Shailene, I was starting at zero. No money, no network, nothing. But I could spend time Googling everything about shea butter and reading books and talking to people and watching interviews. So don't underestimate the power of that. Become an expert. Absolutely. If you have nothing else, become an expert. I don't care who it is. They can't overtalk me on shea butter at all. (laughs) Try me. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, tell everybody. And a lot of times people are like, oh, don't tell your secret idea. It's not a secret. Someone somewhere has probably done something similar. Relax. Tell everybody. When I say tell everyone, I would talk to anyone who would listen to me about shea butter and women in Africa, anybody, at the bus stop, the airport, in line at the grocery store, the cab drivers, church member, anyone. People in my church call me Shea Butter. I don't even know if they know what my real name is, but they knew that's the lady who talks about Shea Butter. Why do I say that? Because what would start happening is that people would associate me with this idea and with this vision, and then they would start sending me resources. This lady I met at the bus stop was one of my first board members. Because I was telling her what I wanted to do and she thought it was cool. She was like, well, you need a volunteer. I was like, yes. This was before I even had a business plan, a model, none of that. So tell everyone, talk about it. Don't be afraid to talk about it and share your vision and your idea with people because you never know who has a resource or who can connect you to someone. And this leads to networking, network, network, network. When I first moved to D.C., I took advantage of all the networking opportunities. And this is from someone who had no network. I was living in a new city. I only knew one person. And so I had to build and grow my network. And I'm not talking about transactional, where you only want to talk to someone because you think they can do something for you. I'm not talking about that. I'm really talking about getting to know people, building relationships. I cannot tell you how important that is because... Everything about business is relationship-driven. People will do things for you, help you, and vice versa because of that connection that they have. And this is coming from someone who went from knowing nobody in D.C. to being on a presidential advisory board. You can't do that unless people know and trust you. And that doesn't happen when it's just transactional. Here's my business card. I would go to networking events and... Some people at the events would just be handing out their cards. They're not talking to anyone. Don't do that because I'm not going to remember who you are. I would go to a networking event and maybe only talk to two people, just invest time in those two people. And that was more beneficial than just handing my card to 50 people in the room. The fourth thing, which I did not do, so this is lesson learned, spend time on your financial model. Even if you don't build out like a business plan and know everything that you're trying to achieve and do in a very clear plan, start with your financials before anything. Understand how much your business is going to cost. And this is both from a product-based business to a service-based business. Know how much things are going to cost you. Estimate out your revenue monthly. Figure out the ability to answer questions like, when will I break even? When will I be able to hire someone? How much are my taxes going to cost me this year? Like, if you don't know those answers, you're not building a solid business because the finances are the foundation. 
And the finances will also guide you in terms of understanding what your strategies are. For example, if I'm thinking I'm going to be able to get a billboard in Times Square, like financially, can you do that? Okay, I can't afford that. But what can I afford? I can maybe afford paying a couple influencers. So then that goes into the marketing section of your finances. So this is something that I think is so important. Before you even think about what the colors of my website is or my logo, what's the finances behind your business? What is the model driving your business? What are the assumptions driving your model? And you don't have to do it by yourself. I did not come from a business background. I was able to build my financial model working with the SBA score advisor. So there are free resources you can tap into to help you achieve that. The fifth and final piece of advice is something I did not do, but I really think is important, which is taking care of yourself. And I know it's kind of like, oh, of course, self-care is a thing now. But no, seriously, take care of yourself. I would be burnt out, stressed out, and then try to make decisions. And it does not work. You will make mistakes. You will trip yourself up. You will cause delays. If you're making decisions and you're not in your most optimal meaning emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically. And I'm not talking about getting up at 5 a.m. so you can run or do your self-care that works for you. I'm not a morning person. Anytime a CEO is like, I wake up at 4 a.m. and but I'm not that type of business owner. But I get all of my ideas at night and I write and I think about this and think about that. And so really understanding yourself and how to take care of yourself and dealing with any unresolved issues in your life. And this is where I strongly recommend working with a therapist, working with a spiritual advisor, whatever it may be that'll work out for you. But I cannot underscore enough the importance of taking care of your mental health, your emotional and spiritual health is so, so important because entrepreneurship is not easy. It is something that has tested me in ways that I don't think anything else could have tested me. I've liquidated my 401k twice being an entrepreneur. I slept in a good friend's living room on a blow-up mattress for almost a year. So there are things I lost my car. There's so many things that you'll go through. Because the reality is most entrepreneurs who look like us are undercapitalized. So we're taking risks and we're trying to get our businesses off the ground with less resources. So unless you have like a huge investor or a reliable investor who's writing you a good check and there to help mentor you and help you guide through the process, there are going to be some lows. There are going to be some financial lows. How do you deal with that? How do you manage that? So that self-care piece cannot be removed. This is so rich. I'm torn between masterclass and sermon. Because <laughs> it's equally both in the best possible way. If you did not get something out of this conversation, there is something wrong with you. <laughs> Rahama, I can't thank you enough. I mean, the time you took to just explain things to us. I mean, I think anyone can understand social impact, just the challenges of entrepreneurship too. And then kind of 
not just legacy, but impact beyond yourself. Like, yeah, it's great to say I'm an entrepreneur. I have this big company, blah, 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 blah. But to say I helped X number of people find their greatness is beyond that. And I think that's the path that you're on. And that's a path that many of us, you know, choose. I mean, that's why I do this podcast. It's kind of like, let me give people access to information. If you dream about it, here's an opportunity to study it as you're just going about your life. You know, you can learn more. So there are ways that each of us can contribute to that goal. Yes. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Start Right Here podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, or review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or share it with a friend. Remember, there is more than one way to the top, but all that is required is for you to take the first step. So we invite you to start right here. Remember to check out our newsletter, The Last Word from Start Right Here. On it, we offer additional information on taking a seat at the table or building one when it comes to beauty and inclusion. You can go to thebeautytable.substack.com or check the link in the show notes.